Thank you very much for coming to this Talk Pops event here at Collect Pond Park in Tribeca. I'm Dr. Schottenkirk and your name is? Aaron Grama. Wonderful, wonderful. So we are here, right, talking about our general topic that we've been doing for a little while, which is artist cognition. So technically, right, cognition means acquisition of knowledge, right? So some people think, right, there's a history of thought that says that, that art is a general experience in the world, and we're talking about it from the point of view of the viewer, right, is just pleasurable. It's just a distraction, right? And then other people have sort of grown up mostly in the 20th century, so sort of saying, no, no, no. Actually, it's a part of epistemology, right? It's a part of gaining knowledge in the world, right? So this whole topic has been a way of, of asking people what the consensus view is. What do you think people do when they stand in front of an artwork or listen to music or read a poem, whatever your, what's your favorite kind of art that you experience? Ooh, interesting question. So yeah. I guess if, if I needed to, to kick it off and I don't have a lot of, I would say, background in art, philosophy in art, um, <laughs> but I'll just say that from my point of view, art was always a very subjective thing um, that everybody... Um, can have their opinion about some people relate to it and some people don't. Um, unlike a lot of stuff, I would say epistem epistemological stuff that we have in the world that we can determine based on the object that we can learn something kind of like there's logic to it. Mm -hmm. I think art more falls on the person who is perceiving it. Um, so we both can look at the same object and can find completely different meanings to it. Um, Okay, think, no, that's, yeah, that's probably yeah. true, right? You, can we just, like, for, you know, helpful reasons here, can we just choose something? I don't know. Like, do you, visual? Music? Reading poetry? books? Okay, yeah. so in literature. Mm -hmm. All right, literature. Okay, so let's just pick an author. Do you have an author in mind? Uh, Christopher Hitchens. Mm, can we do fiction? Because <laughs> that's, like, nonfiction, right? Can we that do, is, yeah. Yeah. Can um, we do... Okay, I guess J.K. Rowling we can do? Okay. Potter, right, yeah. all right. It's... So there's sort of very popular, right? Right, kind of writer. All right, now, I'm going to pick a fight, okay? For no reason? <laughs> For Let's no do reason. It. Let's do it, right? <laughs> you say that everybody who stands in front of something or experiences something has a different point of view, right? But, right, with Rowling, with all the Harry Potter series, there's a striking consensus about what's going on in each of those books, not just in terms of the narrative, but in terms of what kind of experience it's bringing people. Is that right or wrong? On some level, I mean, there's the narrative of the of the author who that they're trying to push um, some kind of, uh, I would say, how, how they perceive art in, in some way, the way that they demonstrate it or explain the visuals yeah. that they have in the book. Right, but I mean, some what you just take five people. Five people read Harry Potter books, right? Are okay. they going to all come up with five radically different experiences? Well, again, that would be very subjective. Also, I mean, for the author, yeah, it would be radically different the way that they perceive it. I mean, she's imagining a kind of like dark room where this scene is happening and having, uh, and then this person is seeing it more as a kind of like happy <laughs> um, scenario, that, that, that happy scene that is happening at the same time. I mean, I can see how she can perceive it as very radical. Um, okay, so you're talking about the difference between the way J.K. Rowling experiences and the way each of those individual people who read it experiences. Is yeah. that what you're thinking have, about? Have you ever seen yeah. in Game of Thrones how many people argue about what was the meaning of the author behind it? 
Um, and, and, That's and, true. and there's so many theories of where that can go and what was the meaning behind the character. And it's radically right. different. Right, right. Um, but, all right, to continue this fight, right? Game of Thrones, we'll do that one, right? If you read a little synopsis somewhere, anywhere, right? This is what Game of Thrones is about, right? Whoever, like Netflix advertises it, right? Somebody's going to come up with what they think is the general objective, to sort of use a word that maybe I don't think is exactly accurate here, but the objective narrative, at least the consensus view. This is what Game of Thrones is, right? So how does that sort of consensus happen if each of the experiences are completely subjective and unrelated to one another? I don't think it's really a consensus. I mean, it, it's not, it, it's, it's very shallow when you do that kind of like um, consensus, specifically like in a few sentences trying to explain a whole entire book. Yeah. I mean, look at the most simple thing. We have the Bible, right? Very straightforward. I can try to summarize for you. It was something that God gave us a book of rules, okay? And then get into it a little bit. Look how many religions we have. Yeah. Look how many inside the religions, how, how many interpretations you have for each law, each yeah. word over there. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you're never going to get to consensus the deeper you go into it. Yeah. But yeah, if I had to describe what the Bible is, I think everybody would describe at the end of the day, in a few sentences, we can agree on that. But but the, the more you delve deeper into it, the more uh, okay. The more problematic right, so I want to give this back to you, then you tell me if this is what you're saying, right? Okay. So I think you're saying, yeah, there is sort of consensus, but it's only at the sort of most superficial level. And it doesn't at all reflect the actual lived experiences of any of the people who stand in front of whatever or read Rawlings exactly. or read the Bible or whatever, right? So you're saying, oh, okay, all right. So maybe what it is, I don't know, we'll just take a number, right? Maybe there's like 10 different layers of experience, right? From the super superficial, which we can all agree on, to the super subjective and personal, which I have even trouble sharing with you. I would agree with that, yeah. Is that's, that what yeah. you're seeing? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Right. That's a good picture, actually. Oh, you might have won this fight. Yeah. <laughs> it's too easy. That to... <laughs> no, was too easy, right? I'll try again. Yeah, a okay, little bit yeah. more pushback on that. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So, subjectivity, right? I want to go back to the Rawlings. There is, though, some consensus that happens about whether or not Harry Potter, right? That Harry Potter is worth reading right? So there's some kind of consensus view that makes that in the canon. This is what I'm thinking about is canons, right? Some things get put in the canon and other things don't get put in the canon, right? And that is kind of based on at least the intersubjective numbers, a certain number of people. How's that work out? What do you think? Okay. I mean, I guess so. But it, it doesn't, I don't think it still takes away from, from the kind of like deeper meaning, the more you yeah, and it's we're, we're getting back kind of like to the same point, but yeah. the agreement of everybody around doesn't necessarily change change the fact that that that, that the book itself or whatever scene, or whatever we want to talk about over there, yeah. um, has deeper meanings over there and deeper levels. Um, but even sometimes the author himself or herself don't don't even know that the they got into like I personally highly doubt that the person who wrote Game of Thrones actually thought as deep as the fans and the meaning behind everything over there. They, they yeah. add, I, I, I highly doubt it. Highly doubt it. Um, but yeah, that, that's... I that's see. So the picture that you're giving is, and we just think about this as sets, right? So say the author, what's his name, Martin? Is that right? Or, um, yeah, Martin is L, it, I think, something. I don't... 
his last name was Martin, the Game of Thrones? Martin. I don't remember. Martin anyway, R, I think, or something. Something, whatever. Mr. X. We'll just call him Mr. <laughs> X. We don't care. Right. So, Mr. X had a set of meanings, right? Maybe 10. Again, we'll get that number, right? 10 different meanings. But you're saying that once it got put out there, it kind of almost became overcomplicated by everybody who experienced it. And so now there's maybe 50 different meanings instead of 10, right? And maybe I have 1 through 30 and you have 20 through 40 and other somebody else has. So we have a whole, each of us have a different set of things, but there's never a completely isomorphic agreement between my set and your set, right? Yeah, there's always some it, disagreement. Is that right? Yeah, I think it also applies to everything that we have yeah. in the world. Everything in I mean, at the beginning, I feel like, um, and maybe, maybe I'm completely wrong over here, and this is where yeah, you're yeah. going push back. <laughs> you mean I might win? Yeah. Something. All right. Um, I'll get excited. Yeah. Um, I, I would assume if, we, if we're looking kind of like more, to, as, as we talked about, like in class, the yeah. empiricists against the rationalists, at the beginning, it was very kind of like simple. You can kind of like break it down. These people were empiricists. These people were rationalists. These yeah. people couldn't, uh, well, they, they assumed that the world was a flow. Uh, whatever okay yeah, so we yeah. have these all kind of like understandings okay but the deeper we got into the semester we learned that there's kind of like there's a category then there's a subcategory okay then you got <laughs> Locke and That's then Leibniz true. on top of it and it builds That's up true. and up and up and up okay yeah. and then every little kind of like change is, is a completely new branch kind of like that we that we analyze um, That's true. Yeah. You know, it's so nice whenever somebody comes into the tent who's been a student of mine, right? Because we need to, to sort of rehash in some ways, right? These things that have happened in a different context, right? So I'm glad that you brought that in. So, And I think it's relevant because you're right. You know, we have these superficial almost, right? These larger categories of empiricists and rationalists in, in epistemology, right? But then when you get to the nuances of each person's thought, it often doesn't really fall so neatly into one category, and it becomes so much more complex. So maybe what you're trying to discuss here is what level of nuance is the level that we now call authentic experience or authentic identification, right? And what level of categorization do we call maybe useful but not true, right? Yep. So I can yep. call you an empiricist, and it's useful, but maybe it's not really quite true, to what you're doing, right? Or I can call Rawlings a uh, fantasist. Would that be right? Is this the right category? I guess so. I, I don't know <laughs> what the category is, right? Yeah. Uh, but that won't be true to the experiences, really, of both what she intended and what other people write. So I guess what you're kind of, if you sort of do that layer cake thing of from the 10 different things, from the most superficial to the most nuanced and subtle and subjective, I guess what you're kind of trying to figure out when you go up and down that thermometer is where do you land where you call it correct assessment, right? Yeah, I think you were even but touching I, a little bit about that also, yeah. I would say, in class. When we were talking about the extremes on both sides. And um, and we were saying that we need a kind of like balance, kind of like in the middle. Um, yeah. And, 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 and yeah, and with that, I, I mean, it, it's good in some places to do that, kind of like making the, the layers um, and... and Obviously, when, you, when you're when you not delving into a subject too much, you want to stick to kind of like the basics, kind of like a, the, the basic understanding of, what, of what's going on. Um, but yeah, I feel like in philosophy, we always go a lot deeper in the layers. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, let me circle back around a little bit. So, 
if art is a kind of knowledge acquisition, which I think is probably a, the right way to do it, right? I think that when we experience any kind of art, we learn things both about the world and about the author and about ourselves, right? There's all kinds of navigating that we do. I guess to bring in your point that those experiences, the true experiences, this is kind of what I think you're identifying, the absolute true experiences are the most subjective. So when I experience anything, right, it's my almost phenomenological experience that only I can really understand because me inside my body is the one who experienced that. And I can't really take that out of my body and give it in a package to somebody else and have them agree to it because it wasn't their embodied phenomenological experience. I think that's kind of the point that you're getting at, right? So I think that you're valuing the subjectivity of phenomenological experiences and going, that's what's real. Is that, yep, yep. Is that right? Yeah, you covered it beautifully. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so if that's true, right, then... What I think then what you end up arguing is that we get maybe knowledge from all sorts of experiences, but that knowledge is almost ineluctably private. You know, it's contained in us and it doesn't really function in the consensus descriptions of things because those are just too outside of our experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to take it to the place that you don't like to. <laughs> do, do. Um, towards kind of like the morality thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, people today believe more that morality is kind of like what, what, what exactly we talked about right now and kind yeah. of like described. Um, and they look at it in more a uh, consensus way. like Superficial. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or even, Easily described. Yeah, or, or even just even kind of like in general, like, what do people think about abortion? Does everyone yeah. agree that abortion is wrong or abortion is right? Um, and we're not analyzing more the layer kind of like inside of, yeah. of like, what is the reasoning that we think that that abortion is wrong or abortion is right? Um, what are the arguments behind that? That there is, I feel like, layers over there for every argument that you want to give. Um, so, so, Aaron... How would we navigate a world that paid attention and took seriously the nuanced details of each of our subjective experience? How would we, how do we maneuver with one another? How do we come to consensus? How do we come to rules? How do we, how would we do that? Like if what's valuable about Rawlings book is really what's valuable to me when I read it, right? Or what's valuable about looking at a Rembrandt is what's valuable to me when I look at it. How do I, how do I bring that ineluctably private thing up into social navigatable waters? So, I think it's a good question. That is a that that is a really good question. I don't think we have an answer in society, um, or a good one at least that that that, that is working for us. Um, but I get the feeling though that's what you're arguing for. I get the feeling that you're kind of wanting to say that we're not paying enough attention. To the sort of lived particular experiences of individuals is that that, that is true but yeah. i i do want to also kind of like stay away a little bit i feel like this can get to relativism really quick yeah late. it sure can and and, and we, we we're not fans of that right. um at yeah. least at least yeah. not me i, I believe yeah, that yeah, you're yeah. also That's, not fans of that right. um so how do we stay away from that and and yeah i feel like we can take it to a lot of areas we can talk about how kind of like hobbs and more in the authoritarian kind of way. It doesn't mean that it's right or, or not, but kind of like saying that 
the government should make the rules, yeah. regardless if they're right or wrong, yeah. and we should just stick to them. That's one approach that can happen. Yeah. Not a big fan of that, but yeah. Um, I personally would love the approach that we have um, with uh, allowing the philosophers to rule. Um, I'm sorry? The, the philosophers, in a way, should be the ones who are oh, oh, right. the kings. Boy, can you imagine um, what a mess that would be? <laughs> We would have to define for the philosophy. Have you ever been to a department meeting? Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, I feel like I feel like there, there would be better discussion if actually the people who were leading it would, would have those nuances and yeah. and understand, and rather than I would say going with populism in, in, a, in a way. In, in but maybe cases. what you're arguing for in a in a more kind of plausible and easily organized fashion is that we each just pay attention more to the individual subjectivities of others and not think that it, we can all go to the superficial level and force everyone else to the same level. It's, it's, I think it's an issue of respect then. There is no? also a little bit to that, but I feel like this is so complicated, the topic. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like we can always get into a little bit more kind of like yeah. nuance also over there because I mean, I feel like if, if, if I agree with you on this, um, then we would have, uh, I mean, you have a lot of people who are saying specific people shouldn't have a say in other people's, uh, let me define this yeah, a little yeah, bit you, better. Yeah, yeah, I knew you were thinking of something in particular. <laughs> All right, so just say it. Yeah. Um, so, so, okay, let, let's, let's do two stuff, okay? Uh, okay. Let, let's say, um, for example, men should not be able to say if it should be right for a woman to have an abortion or not, Okay. okay? Um, because they never had that experience. It's a subjective experience that is that, that, that women have and not that and that men don't have. So they should just shut up and just yeah. <laughs> sit this one out. Yeah. Um, and, and the same thing you can hear also with uh, social justice a lot of times. Um, when you have people who are saying we should do this and this in order to correct uh, um, the stuff and then... Um, oh, but you're not experiencing that. You can't say. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, and you have that a lot. Now, I, I don't necessarily like oh, that I argument. See. And you're um, worried that this respecting the subjectivities will go that far. Exactly. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. I, I, right. and I feel like that's dangerous to society in some yeah. way. Uh, uh, um, I see. Okay. All right. So then let me amend the principle, right? So we listen to other people's subjectivities, but that doesn't mean that their subjectivities rule the day. I can agree with that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I think we do have to yeah. take in that information from... from uh, 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 from the other side, okay? We can't have this one dictator who decides everything in the world or, yeah. or anything like that. Or, you know what, I'll go even further, kind of like with a more personal thing. I remember that we were having an argument about uh, defining anti-Semitism. Um, and we were inside this uh, conversation. With, you don't mean you and I. No, no, no. no. That we as someone else. Okay, yeah. just to be clear. Because yeah. um, I was like, I don't remember this argument. Yeah. It, it was a group of Jewish students. Yeah. We talked with the... With the chancellor, um, yeah. Okay. So in CUNY, and, and we were trying to de we were trying to define anti-Semitism in a way, and a future students wanted to push uh, um, one definition of anti-Semitism, and um, there were other people around that were actually pushing back a lot on that, and they were like, "We can't agree with that definition." Um, Definitions are very hard. Yeah, but but yeah. but what they were saying is what they were arguing. A few of the Jewish students, and it was really hard for me to get behind that uh even though i agreed with their definition there was like there were like well other groups are able to define what racism is towards them why can't jews define what racism is towards them mm -hmm. um and i was like 
I, I, I disagree with that notion. You can't say that because you're Jewish, whatever you say automatically qualifies as the definition for anti-Semitism, okay? So I'm just going to give kind of like an example, and yeah, whether yeah. we agree or not, okay? So I, for example, agreed with the, that in part the definition of anti-Semitism would include if you blame all Jews, if you, if you hold them responsible for the actions of the state of Israel. So if I see a random Jew in the street yeah. and I basically throw on him the responsibility of the actions of the state of Israel, I felt it was anti-Semitic. Okay. Although not necessarily everybody would agree on that. Okay, and that's fine. Ah, I so see. I see the problem. Yeah. yeah. So I say that's for me that's logical. That would be right. th- that would be anti-Semitism. But I don't think it should be the definition of anti-Semitism because I think because I'm because I'm Jewish and I believe that that should be the definition. Yeah. I see. Okay. So let me try to systematize this. So there's got to be a number, right? I know I'm always attached to this, right? But there's got to be a number that you reach, a percentage that you reach, right? Where I know that not all Jews are going to think that that's a definition of anti-Semitism right now, right? But there's got to be, just say theoretically, if it came to be the case where 95% of Jews thought that that was a definition of anti-Semitism, then you would go, oh, it's not just me. Everybody seems to think this, right? But it's just that you think that with that statement, you don't have the numbers there behind you. I would go that, even a little bit further. I okay. would say that even if I had the numbers, that that's not what qualifies it as as anti So what, so what it qualifies the, it as being true? That's the question, right? And this is back to the canon of art. What qualifies it as being true? I think we do have in the world some objective stuff that we can lean on. Um, and I think that those objective claims that we have, whether we want to call that uh, um, in, some, in some capacity logic, math, or we want to build on that, yeah. um, I think that with that we have to build these claims if we want it to be universal rules for everyone. Or true for enough people that we call it universal. See, that's or what I think it is, okay. right? I mean, I think if we can get to 95% on something, we're pretty good. Yeah, because you know? obviously there is going to be still that 5% that believe that the earth is flat. Okay, right. like well, we're, we're never going like to deal with that. Them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and a lot of people think that Rembrandt is terrible, right? And we just ignore them, right? Yeah. Because it's, but this is kind of what I was asking you at the beginning, right? How does something get the consensus that it needs in order to get into the canon, right? You come about it from an interesting connected point, which is the definition of anti Semitism. How do we get to that definition? in a consensus way that it becomes the definition that we use, right? Yeah. I'm still, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I, until, until this day, yeah. I don't know what would be the right way to approach this in order to convince people that this should be the definition. I don't know on what grounds I'm staying. I, yeah. I, I, I do believe that that should be the definition. Right. Okay. Uh, and I wish that more people would kind of like adopt that kind of like, uh, um, that part at least of the definition. Yeah, point of view. Yeah. But, uh, but, it's a persuasion thing. I, I do right. think it involves yeah. persuasion over here, obviously. So that's too. that's one way to win, and to, yeah. to, to, yeah, to get your definition, yeah. is convince everybody. Even if, even if it's wrong, if you're able to convince everyone, yeah. yeah. I mean, what makes something right? I mean, you know, right and wrong is like becomes a little fuzzy, right? Because when you add the epistemological problem of belief on top of it, right? Something becomes right a lot of times for us, right? If we believe it's right. This is Charles Sanders' purse, right? Yeah. We don't doubt anymore. We're convinced, right? You persuade enough people that that's the definition, right? You persuade enough people to take Rembrandt seriously, and now it's in the canon, and now it's the definition. So I feel like there's two ways that we can yeah. approach 
this kind of like understanding of what would be a truth. Yeah. The it's one that you truth. described right now, yeah. that's exactly okay. The number, it's kind of like a numbers game. You get the more the more amount of people who believe it. And yeah. That's, that's, so like that's we had the 95%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the second approach would also be having a kind of like objective claim that we can actually verify. So such as gravity or something like that. But do you think that that happens in human interactions? Yeah. Really? 95% of the population believes that there's God. <laughs> you might have won on this last point that we're going to make here, right? I think I think I've lost too many in this conversation. I'm going to quit. You should have to... gone down that road. <laughs> Thank you very much, Aaron. It was really great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor. Appreciate it.